This is hell. The planet's on fire. So, yes, this is hell. And not only is our planet on fire, but crop diversity is in danger, too. It must be as we are storing away seeds of endangered plants. So when we need them in a future of far less plant diversity than we currently have. And like I said, we must not have much of a future, and the future must be really bleak if we're storing away all these seeds and seed vaults. Why else would we have constructed places like the Svalbard Global Seed Vault? You may have seen images of the vault, a minimalist wedge shimmering in the Norwegian archipelago of Svalbard, stuck in permafrost and thick rock to protect seed samples from the world's crop collections, just in case we need them to feed ourselves and survive in the future. Although you gotta admit, it's a weird way to preserve crop diversity by storing it away in a frozen locker to sit on shelves until who knows when. However, it's not that weird when you consider the history of crop diversity, how crops were abundant and diverse, that is, until modernity arrived with its science and research, ready to improve upon the natural world and make it, well, modern. And that meant better, or so they assumed, no longer being stewarded by indigenous cultures and instead controlled by Western civilization. So how did the crops people have depended upon for their survival for millennia become endangered? Why is it, for instance, that there were once numerous kinds of corn, but now we seem to be down to only one? Because corn is a huge part of the global diet, and if we are down to one kind of corn, that cannot be good for the future of a global food staple. In a few minutes, we will learn why corn is endangered, if it is endangered, and what is endangering it. When we speak with historian Helen Ann Curry, author of the new book, Endangered Maize, Industrial Agriculture and the Crisis of Extinction. Helen is Peter Lipton Lecturer in History of Modern Science and Technology at the University of Cambridge and a fellow of Churchill College at Cambridge, where she researches and teaches the history of recent science and technology, especially as it relates to food and agriculture. She's also the author of the 2016 book, Evolution Made to Order, Plant Breeding and Technological Innovation in the 21st and the 20th Century America. Since August 2020, Helen has led the project From Collection to Cultivation, funded by the Wellcome Trust. This team of researchers is rewriting the histories of how today's food crops came to be. You can follow Helen on Twitter at H.A. Curry, that's C-U-R-R-Y, and you can find out more about Helen at HelenAnnCurry.com. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Whooper. Sebastian, what's new by you, sir? Uh, yeah, well, you know, um, inching ever closer to uh, the the uh, much desired green card. Oh. I uh, it was I went through the green card medical exam last week, and well, uh, I have a little bit of an axe to grind. I mean, I have a whole a whole arsenal of axes to <laughs> grind. Um, otherwise, I guess I wouldn't be on this program. <laughs> um, so, talking to the civil surgeon, um, that's the title that the people who do... Uh, the physical? Is, yeah, yeah. Civil a, surgeon. Civil surgeon, Crazy. Yes. Do they wear a uniform? No, no. It's, it. it's basically just, like, it's basically just um, any kind of uh, medical practitioner, I guess, who can do that, like, like your regular internist, but 
they have to undergo like a some sort of certification. Um, but anyway, so uh, this this doctor um, in a in a uh, in a who has his practice close by here. Okay. Um, so while we were filling out all these forms, he so he is, was himself an immigrant. Um, and in his thick accent, he, uh, tells me, you know, he loves, he, he loves America, he loves this country and everything, but, you know, the country has problems. Um, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I agree, the country has problems. And then he goes on, yeah, you know, when it started last, like, like last year with the monuments and then all the crime, and I'm just like, here is a very well-educated, ostensibly, person who, just like so many other people in this country, live in this kind of counter reality where um crime is rampant and on always on the upswing and the police are helpless which is basically what he told me that he wow. thought that the police were helpless uh because they couldn't do anything and unlike where he came from um and that just gets me frustrated yeah because I... you know uh people live in this in this world constructed by the media and politicians have to address this counter-reality, not the real reality, and keep funneling money to the police instead of to the, you know, programs that would actually help out. diminish crime. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, and I, I couldn't, I wouldn't, I'd be freaked out about that kind of conversation with somebody while you're getting immigration papers. Like, is this a setup? Am I supposed to agree with them? Am I, is this being recorded? That is, that's a really bizarre thing to be discussing citizenship with somebody who is supposed to be determining whether your citizenship should be taking place or not. That's, I would feel really freaked out. Usually at this time when I'm uh, exchanging pleasantries with the producer, as I am doing right now with uh, Sebastian, I complain about suffering from some physical ailment or another, whether it's my bad back that I injured years ago on a job site, my lack of intestinal fortitude inherited from my father that has forced me to miss shows in the past, or my most recent bout with bronchitis, which caused a persistently sore throat for over two months, a sore throat that was later determined to be caused by acid reflux, which is related to my intestinal problems. I usually explain that what is new by me is the same old, same old, and that is one way or the other I'm suffering with some physical problem. But today, no longer on my meds for the stomach problem, without waking up coughing and no stiffness in my back, I actually feel fine. And it's a really, really weird feeling. It's like all of a sudden being sober. But more important than me not being in one pain or the other, which is odd. Sebastian, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, <clears throat> what is more likely to happen this year than the This Is Hell anniversary party currently scheduled for July 2022? Uh, no. no. <laughs> so what is more likely to happen this year than the This Is Hell anniversary party currently scheduled for July 23rd, 2022? Uh, Sebastian will have some of your answers following our guest the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell merchandise you want the this is hell t-shirt the tote bag 
the face covering or the face mask, the coffee mug that this is held guide to the 21st century flash drive, featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, which comes in a couple of different colors, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our swag right now by going to thisisheld.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks to Jonathan B. of Chula Vista, California, who picked up two This Is Hell t-shirts. Thanks, Jonathan. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth, during this week's moment of truth, Jeff takes sides in the werewolf v. vampire war. Didn't know that that was an ongoing war. Sebastian will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Helen on Endangered Maze. Email us, message us via Facebook, or tweet at us on Twitter with your guest or topic suggestions, or tell us anything you'd like to share on the show, and we will likely read it on air. Randall L. sent a guest suggestion, writing, Hi, Chuck, I'm a podcast listener who found my way to This Is Hell five years ago, more or less. It's hard to calculate how much time has passed in this changeless groundhog day of a hellscape that we share. So just count me as one of those long-time listener, first-time caller types. Your January 12th Carbon Dominance interview with Jeff Nesbitt has been bouncing around in my brain for the past week. What struck me hardest from that hard-hitting interview was the idea that the fossil fuel industry, or as he calls it, the fossil fool industry, eased our acceptance of widespread methane use by calling it natural gas. Such a simple and obvious and invisible idea until a Jeff Nesbitt comes along and calls attention to it. That little mind bomb really blew me away. Listening to that podcast motivated me to do two things regarding This Is Hell. I ordered a This Is Hell winner beanie slash toque from your website because you have more than earned my support and my head is cold. I'm also sending you this email suggesting a topic or guest for an upcoming show that I think relates to the subject of oil industry power and political manipulation. Please consider sharing the story of Stephen Donzinger with your listeners. I think Donzinger himself is an excellent spokesperson for his own case, or if you would prefer, there are some easily Google journalists who have been covering this story. Donzinger is an environmental and human rights lawyer. In 2011, Donzinger was an un, won an unprecedented and potentially precedent setting. $9.5 billion court judgment in Ecuador against Chevron on behalf of indigenous Ecuadorians who were poisoned by toxic waste that Chevron dumped in the Amazon rainforest. Chevron has never paid a cent of that award. Instead, they have been using the legal system to punish Donzinger for successfully suing him, suing them. They did this in order to deter him and any other lawyers who might challenge oil companies in the future on a similar basis. Chevron accused Donzinger of manufacturing evidence in that case, they sued him uh, and accused him of withholding evidence in that lawsuit. Federal judge in the Southern District of New York in that case tried to charge Donzinger with criminal contempt of court, but the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York refused to prosecute the case. The judge then, in a rare, rarely used procedure, appointed a private corporate law firm that has also represented Chevron as special prosecutors to prosecute Stephen Donziger for that criminal contempt of court. He was denied a jury trial in that case, lost his law license, and was found guilty in that case by a different judge and sentenced to a six months in prison. 
That six-month sentence came after Donzinger had spent more than two years under house arrest in a process that the United Nations experts found lacks any legal basis and is in violation of numerous fair trial standards. The UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention found that his detention is in retaliation for his work as a lawyer for the indigenous communities in Ecuador. As of January 21st, Stephen Donziger will have spent 900 days in detention, 45 of them in a jail cell for the crime of successfully suing an oil company for polluting the Amazon and injuring an indigenous community. I've never met Donziger or anyone who is part of this case. I'm not an expert in legal affairs or environmental sciences. I am simply an appalled and sickened citizen of the country that is persecuting him on behalf of the oil industry. And I'm an air breather and water drinker who hopes that he and people like him can help us protect our future. If you can't get justice for Donziger, why should other publicly minded lawyers and activists sacrifice their freedoms to achieve anything? This story should be much more widely known, but media attention to this case has been sparse and largely sympathetic to Chevron, even from supposedly liberal media like CNN, MSNBC, and NPR. A search on the NPR website only came up with a few mentions from 2014 that portray him as an attention-seeking crank who is getting what he deserved for harassing Chevron. Just disgusting. Chuck, I hope I've convinced you that This Is Hell should help pick up the slack and spread the word about his injustice. A fellow damned soul... Randall L. in Silver Spring, Maryland. And then he offers links to the Free Donzinger website, Chris Hedges' most recent writing on uh, Stephen Donzinger, uh, someone by the name of Dr. Nan M. Greer, an ecological anthropologist who has written on Chevron's eco-crimes. Thanks, Randall. This is definitely a story that I am interested in, and thank you for reminding me and sending the links. Also, you're not the only one blown away by the fact that natural gas is methane. That seems to be something that nobody, including myself, knew. We'll have more of your feedback following our conversation with Helen Ann on the threat to crop diversity and what can be done about it. We'll have your answers to this week's question from Hell, which is, what is more likely to happen this year than this is Hell's anniversary party currently scheduled for July 23rd, 2022. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing, this is Hell. We all know that the future of our food is in danger. At least it appears to be. Why else would we be storing away crop seeds, collecting them from all over the world to store them in seed vaults as a kind of rainy day fund for us to use when they're needed? But how are future crops protected when they're stored away in vaults? And what happens to things like natural evolution and cross-pollination when they're sequestered away? Here to help us understand what is meant by a crop being endangered and how it got that way, historian Helen Ann Curry is author of the new book, Endangered Maze, Industrial Agriculture and the Crisis of Extinction. Welcome to This is Hell, Helen. Thanks so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for being on the show. This is something that we have not discussed that much in the past. We did have a guest on a few years ago about biodiversity and how it is misunderstood. And so I'm really looking forward to this conversation as a follow-up to that. You write, each year the world's farmers produce more than 1 billion tons of maize or corn. Their annual collective harvest provides an estimated 20% of the world's caloric intake. In the 21st century, maize dominates farms and diets and does so across remarkably diverse cultural and ecological conditions. So how dependent are we on corn when it comes to feeding the world? And are we too dependent on corn for our diets? Is the agriculture sector, the industry, 
too dependent on corn? That's a great set of questions. And I think a, a, a good way to, to start diving into them is in some ways to, to point out my own expertise is as a historian. Um, and so to understand a lot about corn uh, as a historian, a historian of science, I've come to depend on the scholarship of a, of a lot of other people. Um, but yes, um, absolutely. I think uh, agricultural economists and agronomists would tell us um, that Raising corn or maize is absolutely central, um, especially to feeding livestock uh, to a slightly lesser extent, actually kind of depends on where you are in the world to, to feeding people. Um, and not everyone would agree uh, that we're depending on corn too much. I'm sure there are uh, plenty of advocates for a kind of streamlined, efficient industrial system that, that, that turns out um, you know, cheap grain in the way that we do today. Um, but there are also plenty of voices on the other end of that spectrum. Uh, people, you know, crop scientists, uh, uh, conservation biologists, uh, people interested in, in agricultural alternatives who would say, we probably are due for a, a diversification of our agricultural system and rethinking our dependency on cheap grain like maize uh, is one way to start. So what about non-food use of corn? Does ethanol, does the development of, of corn as a fuel, has that had an impact on the lack of diversity when it comes to corn? Well, I think it would be more appropriate to point to um, the pressure to, to, to produce um, more <laughs> and to produce more at a lesser cost than to specifically, for example, pinpoint ethanol. Um, so, you know, in the, in the, in the book Endangered Maze, I, I really look at the whole history of efforts to conserve genetic diversity in crops and think about what have been the pressure points in reducing diversity. Um, and I, I refer to maize, but it's actually a trend that we see across many different crops, right? So, um, and not everything is, is transformed into a, a, a fuel product in the way that, that maize is. And so the pressures that tend to come to bear on crops that, that cause the, um, you know, the, the reduction in diversity in those crops and the reduction in genetic diversity in particular comes from a variety of factors. Uh, and, and what links them together is often this emphasis on uh, productivity, uh, on the simplification of agricultural systems, uh, also on the, the kind of consolidation of the seed industry, so, so fewer inputs into the system. But it's really kind of all of those things. Um, and so I wouldn't point to, to ethanol uh, specifically. You also point out that by many accounts, the uh, that crop diversity is in danger. A plant scientist managing an international gene bank in central Mexico curates thousands of samples of corn from around the world. Maize's genetic diversity is unique, she emphasizes, and must be protected in order to ensure the survival of the species and allow for breeding better varieties. Now, the agricultural can, uh, industry often employs monocrop planning. As a 2014 article by the Indiana University South Bend Sustainability Project states, monocrop farming is the practice of growing large amounts of one crop on the land. This type of farming does not provide the diversity needed in our diets or to our ecosystem. A clear way to send a message that monocropping is unacceptable as the major source of farming is to support local, organic, diverse farms. How much of a danger is a lack of diversity to continued corn production? Can the agricultural sector embrace both diversity 
and monocrop production? Well, that's a fascinating question. I think, you know, to, 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 to bring us to the seed bank that you started there with the, the quotation from, from the seed bank manager uh, in Mexico, uh, she managed um, until her, her recent retirement from that post, um, um, she and, and now her successor uh, managed a, a collection of thousands of individual samples or accessions of uh, maize from really around the world. Um, that collection has a, has a particular strength in maize of the Americas. Uh, and maize originated in uh, Mexico. Uh, that's where it was first domesticated. And the diversity of maize that we see uh, across the continents is, is um, really uh, impressive. Uh, and so uh, the reason that collection in Mexico exists is because um, as farmers, especially initially in the United States, transitioned from growing what would have been um, local varieties, so whether farm-saved seed or locally adapted varieties produced by um, agricultural experimentation. As farmers transitioned to um, more professionally bred seed uh, over time, they increasingly moved towards similar, uh, similar varieties. Uh, so they kind of clustered around the ones that performed best in the field, that gave them the greatest uh, reward for the, for the money that they invested in seed, right? So farmers in a lot of ways benefit from a move towards, um, well, professionally uh, bred and produced seed. Um, and through uh, certain kinds of, of, of shifts in agricultural production towards, you know, getting more out of every, every inch of land, right? Um, and so as farmers made the shift towards uh, uh, more standardized, more potentially genetically homogenized uh, strains of maize, researchers, including plant breeders, started to get worried that the varieties um, which had a greater range of diversity, some of those local varieties of the past, um, increasingly by the 1950s, they were worried about um, farmers, uh, peasant and indigenous farmers across the Americas, potentially transitioning from um, their local varieties, which would have been you know, grown for, for, for kind of countless generations in different regions, recombined and crossed and developed. Breeders started to worry that all of this um, heterogeneity out of the world was disappearing and that they wouldn't have access to it to develop um, crops for the future. And so that's really the origin of, of seed banks is, is um, these kind of offsite storage facilities for uh, genetically diverse varieties. Um, those came about because scientists and especially plant breeders worried that they would lose the very materials that could be useful to them in, in breeding the varieties of the future. Um, but of course, the varieties that they were breeding uh, were those ones feeding into uh, a, a more industrialized style of production, right? And so that's where this, this is coming back to your question about the relationship between diversity and, and monocrop. The, the great diversity of the world's crops was very early on recognized as an essential kind of input, if you will, into um, uh, a style of farming that didn't necessarily have that diversity at the center. So is this a matter of big agriculture guiding the science or science guiding big agriculture? Well, can I, can I push back on that? What do you mean here by, by science? 
uh, the the breeders are were the uh, the people who are breeding the seeds. Are they people who are coming up with the ideas first, and then the big agriculture is listening to them, or is it they're listening to big agriculture and they're trying to uh, pursue the goals of big agriculture rather than what might be seen as the more objective goal of uh, seed breeding? Well, um, if we look back in history, right, the the first kind of concerns that scientists raised about the possibility of losing diversity um, are in the 1880s and the 1890s, uh, uh, especially in Europe, when farmers started to rely more on local agricultural research stations, which were producing improved, quote unquote, um, improved lines of different crops that performed better for those farmers. And, uh, and we might think of that as a period of time that's prior to big agriculture. Big ag didn't exist in that, in that moment in time, right? So this is a, a trend. Plant breeding might inevitably produce these kind of bottlenecks uh, in terms of genetic diversity. And the question is really, um, does the, the, the style of industrial farming and its association with uh, transnational uh, corporations and and um, their interest in their own bottom lines um, that we see after World War II, right? Does that does big agriculture intensify a pattern that we would see no matter what when it came to something like breeding better strains of 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 corn and wheat and other crops, which essentially we 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 do want to do, right? We depend agriculture today, whether it's organic farming or whether it's industrial farming, depends on improved crop varieties, depends on the work of plant breeders. And what plant breeders do is uh, winnow out the kinds of genetic material that's not helpful to produce um, something that will perform better you know, on the farm, irrespective of what kind of farm that is. So, so yeah, so it's not, it's not just big agriculture. It's, it's a much more complex um, set of phenomena than that. And you write that subsistence cultivators are the only farmers who still grow many of Mexico's historical maize varieties, and their efforts ensure the crop's continued adaptation to changing needs and environments. Economic policies have made it difficult for them to carry on, however, and experts worry that farmers are sowing and maintaining this diversity at an ever-increasing cost to themselves and their families. So subsistence farmers are keeping the corn diversity going. Are, Are big eggs attempts to buy up small farms then, a threat to not only feeding the world, but a threat to feeding that diversity? I would say that um, farmers' loss of land, um, particularly in um, um, places in the global south, the the marginalization of subsistence farmers and their uh, cultivation methods, and um, yeah, the the whether the land is being whether small farms are being bought up by big agriculture or whether farmers are being pushed off their land, you know, in some cases by conservation enterprises, um, uh, it's it's a it's a mixed picture. But when farmers don't have access to the land uh, that they need or the time that they need uh, to cultivate um, what we might think of as kind of traditional crop varieties. That's absolutely a, a cause of the loss of diversity. And I really like that you brought in, uh, the, for example, the, the farmers in Mexico who keep many of what are called the races, the different races of maize in Mexico uh, in cultivation. Um, because in the lead to the show, you said we're down to just one maize variety. And of course we're not. There's a, a considerable amount of extant 
crop diversity in the world, not just in our, our, our big crops like, like maize and wheat, um, but of course in, in many other crops besides. And um, one of the, the, the stories that we see in, in looking through the long history of efforts to conserve um, crop genetic diversity is that since the, the, the late 1980s and 1990s, many experts in crop diversity have, um, have begun to insist and, and in, insist in increasingly ardent tones um, that the, the real pathway to conservation is to support those farmers who do still grow um, different strains of maize, different strains of wheat, uh, different kinds of potatoes. Uh, and so there has been a recognition that, for example, the, the Svalbard seed vault can't be everything, um, that we also need to be sustaining communities uh, and cultivators in place, that we need to make sure their land and their resources are, are protected and defended. You write on the history of maize to trace the origins of and motivations behind accounts of diversity's loss and to show how these shaped the methods and tools of conservation adopted by scientists and states. This research reveals interests and concerns that are often obscured or deliberately masked by simple declensionist tales. Who is doing this obscuring and why deliberately mask the new diversities, if you will, with tales of decline, why the pessimism without the optimism? Who benefits from such a focus on decline? I think that's that's a really great question. So what I'm referring to there uh, in, in, in speaking of a declensionist tale, uh, this kind of narrative of decline, is the story that we hear, and I think we hear it in news reports about crop diversity. Um, it's the simplified way of discussing is to say that we're, uh, you know, it's headed for extinction. Um, this is a crisis scenario. There is an inexorable trajectory of uh, what people call agricultural modernization or industrialization. And um, as farmers around the world transition to new styles of production, um, diversity will be lost, right? So um, when we tell that kind of story about crop diversity um, uh, and, and scientists have characterized things in that way at various, at various different points, say over the past century. Um, I think there's a, a failure in talking about crop loss um, to be talking about what's happening to the farmers who, who grow those crops. So um, to give you an example, one of the key moments in which there's mobilization to um, uh, gather up uh, all sorts of, of, of genetically diverse crops from different places in the world. Um, this is in the 1970s. Uh, the, there's this moment of intensity and it's um, specifically because of the increased pace at which development programs are unfolding, especially development programs around agriculture. So you might be familiar with the phrase, the green revolution, which picks out um, a, a sort of uptick in agricultural productivity in, in Latin America and, and Asia, um, especially in the late 1960s, that's associated with uh, several different shifts in agricultural production from use of synthetic fertilizers uh, to uh, greater irrigation capacity, but is also very much associated with the introduction of new, um, new varieties of wheat and new varieties of rice, uh, which would be um, um, uh, more productive than, than what farmers were traditionally growing. And this idea that this large scale kind of global even transformation in agricultural production, including a changeover in seeds, uh, drove 
especially scientists and plant breeders to organize new international collecting and, and seed bank missions uh, or, or seed bank construction and collecting missions in, in the 1970s. But of course, you might also ask a question about what was happening to those farmers, right? Not just to their seeds. Uh, and uh, in the next decade or so after that um, kind of salvage mission of collecting uh, uh, was undertaken, collecting that I should, I should add was seen to be essential because the changeover in agricultural production was assumed to be so good for farmers, right? The green revolution would, um, and, and in some cases did, uh, feed hungry people, uh, addressed issues of famine, for example, in India in, in the late 1960s. Um, but as, as um, farmers were assumed to be taking on new seeds and that this change style of production would be good for them. Um, but of course that, ended up being a kind of mixed story uh, in the decades that followed. And many researchers uncovered uh, increases in inequality, uh, the exacerbation of, of environmental problems. And so this narrative of inevitable changeover in agricultural production, uh, uh, changeover in seed that had to happen as a part of this modernization process, that story um, really needed actually the kind of integration of the experiences uh, of the farmers in those places uh, to really be thinking about uh, what it would mean for farmers uh, to be um, changing over to a new style of production, uh, maybe marginalized from uh, communities that they've been a part of before uh, as a result, for example, of, of losing land or other experiences. And so, talking about those experiences was not part of the story of, of uh, agricultural modernization initially. And it's part of the important piece of the history kind of to restore uh, in telling this narrative of crop conservation. So uh, you point out that, um, that your research reveals how conservationists forge their methods for preserving crop plants, their modes of collection, classification systems, storage technologies, and negotiation tactics around expectations of social, political, and economic transformations that would eliminate diverse uh, communities and cultures. So was conservation focused on eliminating older, potentially indigenous practices of diversity? Did Western science view even ancient practices is able to be improved upon, if not made obsolete? So I wouldn't say that, that the agenda of conservation it, itself was or is tied up with um, the, the um, aim of, of trampling out, if you will, or, or um, trampling out diversity or, or past practices. I think the agenda of agricultural improvement or agricultural modernization has often seen that as a necessary byproduct. So I guess that's really what I was trying to get at in, in discussing the development programs of the 1970s. The idea was that you know, there is a, a development theory held that there were kind of a, a staged progression of, um, of social and economic development that societies would go through and, and changing over agricultural production, we might think of as, as one subset of that vision of modernization, right? And as part of that process, uh, quote unquote, peasant farmers would be transformed into quote unquote, modern ones, right? And modern farmers would tend to look more the same all the world over uh, in comparison to the, the cultures and practices and, and communities that preceded them. So what happens to 
conservation or what happens to uh, crop diversity when it, when it takes seeds out of nature, does not allow them to continue new and diverse strains? Do seed banks put local seed diversity on hold temporarily? Well, in some ways, it depends on the kind of seed bank. Um, so you referenced Svalbard in the in the opening to the show, and Svalbard is a what's called a, a safety duplicate facility. It operates as a kind of backup for many of the world's uh, other seed and gene banks, and that really is is long term cold storage to be drawn on in in case of an emergency. And so those are very much frozen frozen for if needed, uh, I suppose with the hope that they, that they will never be needed in most cases, um, that, that the seed banks that are closer to farm fields uh, in different parts of the world will be um, able to withstand you know, environmental and institutional and, and financial shocks of different kinds. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, you have community seed banks and, and um, other organizations that are very much uh, centered in communities. So there are some good examples uh, in the United States, for example, um, Native Seed Search in Arizona is a, a community centered seed saving organization that certainly has a, a seed bank associated with it. Um, but its agenda is to see seeds in cultivation and in particular to see varieties in cultivation among, among Native American farmers. Um, so so um, participating in kind of regenerative, restorative um, work as well. And so, so the, the question about you know, what happens in a seed bank really depends on, on which seed bank we're talking about. I would also add to that that I think the work that seed banks do is really important in 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 um, setting aside materials that are um, in many ways fragile, um, so that we could potentially research them or, or draw on them in the future. I don't think there's there's there would not be a good argument for for ending the practice of, of seed and gene banking at all. I think it's an essential resource for our for our agriculture of the future. I think the, the question, and, and it's not just my question, it's a question that, that researchers from, from different fields and especially um, within the, the sciences of crop diversity have asked is whether, well, one, how we can make seed banks both more robust and how we can make sure that um, the materials that are in them make it out more often, uh, whether that's in use by professional breeders or uh, distributed to, to, to kind of farming communities or, or other people who want to grow and work with those seeds. Uh, and then also supplementing the work of ex situ seed banks with in situ conservation. And as I say, this is a, a significant area of, of work and research today that depends both on, on scientists, on uh, especially nonprofit institutions, but, but state government um, projects as well, and on farmers themselves and, and growers to participate in. You write the and read. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and that's really, you know, the sort of supplementary practice to we want the seed banks as the backups and the, and the farmers really as the, the conservation in, in practice. But they always they haven't always worked together. You write that the resources vision and seed bank conservation historically associated with the United States and European imperialism. And by the 1970s, aligned with increasingly powerful agribusiness as well, eventually drew criticism from diverse quarters. What, what is meant by the resources vision so our listeners understand? Yeah, absolutely. So the resources division is this idea that 
the seeds of diverse crop varieties. So what are called land races, locally adapted varieties that farmers might grow in a particular region. The seeds of those varieties harbor a kind of genetic diversity, not a kind of, but a, they definitely harbor genetic diversity within them. Uh, and that by saving the seed in something like a seed bank, you set that aside to be accessed and used in the future. And that is thinking of seeds as the, the source or the repository of what scientists refer to as genetic resources. So that's the, the resource vision sees a seed or seeds of diverse varieties, not as necessarily something to be planted season after season, but something that can be basically mined for future value. Right. That's what that's what the resources vision um, that that I'm referring to there is. Uh, you also write that those who were critical of the resources vision and seed bank conservation, quote, included plant scientists who prioritized continued evolution over static security and cold storage and representatives of national governments, especially in Africa, Latin America and South Asia, which felt that they were being stripped of valuable products by more powerful countries and transnational corporations. So are, are seed banks an attempt, intentionally or not, at taking seed evolution out of the hands of farmers in the global south? Is seed bank conservation about the North's control over food? Well, in in many ways, this was a debate that really raged in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, I mentioned a little bit ago this scramble to collect seeds in the 1970s on the heels of what was seen to be accelerated development of agriculture, especially in the global South. So there was a, a kind of scramble for seeds that resulted in uh, quite significant collections of many different kinds of crops being put together and held by and large in uh, seed banks that were either located in the global North, so in Europe or the United States, um, or that were controlled by international organizations uh, uh, that were themselves uh, also um, kind of orchestrated or, or, or operated by um, European and, and US actors. Um, so, so there was this suddenly a, a, a considerable stockpile, if you will, of uh, seeds mostly collected from, from Asia, from Africa, from Latin America, being stored outside of the control of, of those countries. Um, and so in the 1980s, uh, and this Specifically, um, a, a debate came about in the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization uh, in which various different actors, seed activists, representatives of the, the Global South in the FAO, um, some scientists as well interested in, in conservation, uh, came together and, and really objected to the, a system that had arisen that was uh, seemingly so inequitably distributed in terms of access. And that, and that um, what had been thought of or often referred to as a global patrimony of humanity was actually something that seemed to be very, very tightly in the control of um, just a subset of countries of the world. When in fact, much of it had been um, generated and maintained um, and, and um, kept extant by, by farmers, uh, again, in, in the global south. So this kind of north-south divide uh, uh, especially had seemed to arisen. And at the same time, this is um, when 
intellectual property protection in, in plant varieties came to be tightened uh, in many parts of the world as well. So it seemed also newly possible that those seeds could be used as resources, going back to the resources vision, into crop varieties that could then be patented and not obtained uh, by farmers in countries that might have um, produced seeds and varieties that had contributed to their development. And so this was really the territory of uh, fierce contestation in the 1980s and in the 1990s. And it's the, the set of contests that led ultimately to what's called the Seed Treaty, which is an, an international regime that really governs the, the keeping of seeds in, in global seed bank collections around the world, as well as their transfer between countries. And, and the Seed Treaty is really was and is uh, an effort to move towards a, 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 a circumstances of, of greater equity in control over seeds. It's not a perfect instrument and, and debates and, and, and changes to it still continue, but that's really where those contests of the 1980s led. We are speaking with historian Helen Ann Curry, author of the new book, Endangered Maize, Industrial Agriculture and the Crisis of Extinction. You can follow Helen on Twitter at H.A. Curry. You can find out more about Helen at HelenAnnCurry.com. She is also the author of the 2016 book, Evolution Made to Order, Plant Breeding and Technological Innovation in 20th, 20th Century America. You write researchers tended overwhelmingly to dismiss the potential role of farmers and making and maintaining varieties, especially when those farmers were peasant and indigenous cultivators overseas. To you, what explains that dismissiveness? Is this simply and not so simply just racism conducted by the breeders, or is it something else? So I think it's really important to flag up that that that, that summary is contextualizing the early history um, as opposed to the, the circumstances that we see today. So um, when... Um, you know, with the development of, of new technologies and interventions or new crop varieties in the early part of the 20th century, um, with those developments, there was a, a very particular vision of what, meant, what it meant to be a, a good and productive and modern farmer. Uh, and that, and that as, I, as I was suggesting uh, earlier um, in terms of, of thinking about development programs, uh, it, meant, it meant putting aside tradition, uh, putting aside the cultivation methods, the techniques, the crops of the past, and moving towards the model that good science had to offer. So a lot of histories point to um, a program that was initiated in Mexico in the 1940s, uh, funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, so a private American philanthropy, which sent American-trained you know, U.S. scientists to Mexico to conduct research that would allow Mexican agriculture to modernize uh, on the American style, right? And so this vision of, you know, what is good research as, as well as what is good agriculture, and that the, obviously the vision there was agriculture based on this, uh, this understood to be good science. Um, and so a convergence towards a, a, a particular model for, for growing crops for, um, for bringing them to market and so on. And so in that moment of time, uh, in the mid 20th century, so prior to uh, the indigenous people's movement, uh, prior to uh, peasant organizing and um, resistance, which is you know, what we see much more of today, uh, 
there weren't necessarily the venues for the, the counter voice to that um, kind of monolithic vision to come forward. And so when I write about um, the, the, the racism or the racist assumptions um, that, that got baked into some uh, early agricultural programs, including some seed collecting projects, I'm really referring to, to, to that vision rather than to any ideas that, that inform this kind of work today. And you write that these narratives about people are more important to understanding the shape that conservation efforts have taken in the past 130 years than are the stories told about plants. The idea that crop varieties might be endangered has always been linked to the idea that a particular community or way of life is about to disappear. This connection has remained stable through successive attempts to preserve crop diversity, despite the variety of political projects they represented. It is this imagined extinction and its implications, and not that of plant varieties themselves, which has produced the approaches to conserving crop diversity we rely on today. So to what extent is the real threat of diversity manufactured and any reaction to it undermined by this narrative of imminent disappearance? I wouldn't say that the narrative of diversity is manufactured in any way. Sorry, the, manuf- the, the narrative of diversity's decline uh, in terms of crop diversity. I think there's a tremendous amount of good research out there that shows um, that in many places and in many different crops, we have lost or um, we have lost varieties or, or, or the varieties in cultivation have significantly diminished such that we've been able to track them, which is actually a quite challenging thing to do. So crop genetic diversity is being lost and that isn't a question. Um, But this narrative of decline when it's told in a kind of totalizing way about this inexorable trajectory of loss is one that sometimes has missed, I think, places where diversity survives and thrives. And so so the narrative of loss is kind of patchy. So it's not manufactured. Um, I think there's there's more a, a question of um, being careful uh, to contextualize uh, the nature of, of the loss that happens. Um, yeah, I, I think I think um, I would. I, can you repeat the 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 quote that you entered with on there? Yes, if I can find it in my notes. Uh, so. Uh... Um, yeah, I, I can't even find it. If now. not, don't worry. Yeah, go there ahead. was something. Yeah. Um, oh, what I was saying was that um, the idea that crop varieties might be endangered has always been linked to the idea that a particular community or way of life is about to disappear. The, this connection has remained stable through successive attempts to preserve crop diversity, despite the variety of political projects they represented. It is this imagined extinction and its implications and not that of plant varieties themselves which has produced the approaches to conserving crop diversity we rely on today. That was the quote that I had read. Excellent, thank you, that's so helpful. What I wanted to call attention to there, uh, and this is a really important part of the story, and, and what I mean by the, the, hidden, the hidden narratives of extinction or the ones that, that don't get talked about, um, is when uh, individuals, uh, whether they're plant explorers of the 1910s or or crop conservationists of the 1950s, when they realized that communities were losing the varieties that they had cultivated over many generations uh, and attempted to to salvage them from, from those communities to be kept in collections or in seed banks, there was a 
not always the kind of acknowledgement that one would want um, to see, I think, you know, as someone looking back from, from the 2020s, um, where we are privileged with hindsight, there wasn't always the acknowledgement um, about the assumptions they were making about, about the extinction and endangerment of particular peoples, right? So they were also taking that trajectory for granted. Um, and, and so relinking some of the, the stories of, of conservation activities to the assumptions that, that individuals had about farmers um, and, and their communities and lifestyles is important. So for example, the book opens with some of the early collections of maize that were conducted in the United States uh, in the 1910s that were motivated by this idea of, of losing diversity, which targeted um, Native American farmers and uh, uh, reservations, especially in, in the American West. Uh, and those were really underpinned by a, a, a settler colonial narrative of uh, inevitable uh, indigenous disappearance. Uh, and so those, those collections of maize diversity um, are often talked about as, you know, the product of this early um, forward-looking vision about um, uh, the way in which, you know, farmers would transition to new varieties and varieties would be lost. But when you go back to the documents, you know, what, what those collectors were thinking was that Native American farmers themselves would not be around, right? And I think that really puts the salvage mission in a, in a quite different light. You write that hybrid corn set a course for the seed industry, which underwent a similarly uh, dramatic consolidation from myriad independent operations to a handful of transnational conglomerates. Hybrid corn influenced U.S. foreign policy from Cold War food power to the North American Free Trade Agreement as the government looked to unload mountains of cheap grain sustained by farm subsidies. It changed diets and not for the better. Inexpensive corn-fed beef and high-fructose corn syrup are often implicated in the steady rise of diet-related health problems like obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. So is hybrid corn, the corn that we generally eat, is that corn bred because of power and profits more than it is bred for nutrition? I would certainly agree that it is not bred for nutrition. Um, that is that is absolutely correct. I think historically, actually, across many, many different kinds of crops, especially the ones that are big commodity grains, uh, the, the emphasis in breeding for, uh, uh, for a century and more has been on uh, making the pile of grain bigger, uh, as opposed to improving the qualities in the, in the pile of grain. There's obviously exceptions to this narrative, but, but by and large, it's about producing varieties that respond to the inputs that we can give them so that more can be squeezed out of, of, of every acre that's planted. You also quote Mexican activist Gustavo Esteva describing how corn is present even in the most unexpected forms in most displays of Mexico's culture today, not just in cuisine, but in art, language, dress, and even everyday ways of thinking and behaving. What happens to that kind of culture when that corn becomes universally generic with hybrid corn, when the local varieties are supplanted by industrial hybrid corn? What is the impact on that culture? Well, this is this very question is one of the reasons that there have been uh, in the past couple of decades um, really impressive and and um, coordinated action in Mexico to um, defend 
Mexican farmers and Mexican eaters from the influx of, uh, of cheap corn from the United States. Uh, obviously, this um, uh, intensified around the time that NAFTA was signed uh, in the early 1990s, um, but it has continued since um, with particular objections to, to transgenic maize and the idea that um, the genes of transgenic maize could move into um, the, the land races that are native to Mexico. Um, but also very much informed by the idea that uh, uh, farmers losing the, the resources, uh, the land, the markets needed to successfully keep growing different varieties or different races of Mexican maize will be a true cultural loss in 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 well, in Mexico and, and, and in other countries that similarly have kind of rich cultures of, of maize cultivation. Um, and so I think the, you know, we don't, we need look no further than um, the, the protests um, that, that arose. Uh, there's a, a network in defense of maize, uh, a campaign that was organized around without maize, there is no country in Mexico. And that these, these initiatives should signal to us just how essential uh, cultivation of crop diversity for a crop that's so uh, culturally entrenched uh, is to, to, to a wide range of people, scientists, activists, uh, indigenous peoples, uh, and more. You also mentioned this idea that suggests that all the diversity we will ever have is already in place and keeps many would-be conservationists fixated in a, on an idealized past even as they strive to secure the future. So is the assumption of seed banks that this is the most diversity we'll ever have and therefore we need to save it? And if so, it, it, well, is that the case? What impact does that, uh, putting these seeds uh, on hold and this diversity on hold, what does that mean moving forward for feeding the world? I mean, that's a great question. I think in the popular imagination of seed banks, to the extent that there is such a thing, the, the vision of these banks is as, you know, storehouses of a diversity that is, that is dwindling. Um, I also, I have to say, I think there's a, a sort of shared sentiment among people who cultivate heritage crops often that they're cultivating something from the past. There's a notion of a, of a static entity that's been saved or it's been rediscovered uh, as the thing that it was. Um, but of course, plant breeders are really active and productive and thousands and thousands and thousands of new crop varieties are registered every year uh, in every different kind of crop. So all crops are on the move. Crop diversity is being created. Uh, farmers who grow traditional, um, uh, maybe farm in, in, in ways that we think of as more traditional. They're engaging in the acquisition of new seeds, they're exchanging seeds, there is genetic interchange, new things are coming about. And so it, there are a lot of reasons to really think about uh, diversity as being not just not static, right? So not just in motion, but also being creative, uh, sorry, being created in, in, in different contexts, right? So. So I think there are more opportunities than maybe we've collectively taken advantage of in thinking about the imperative to conserve crop diversity. Uh, there are more opportunities to think about what it would mean to conserve creatively. So not to focus on static collections or varieties saved uh, just as they were, the kind of heritage vegetable, but to, to think about 
um, diversity in motion. And to really, I think it, it would require action on multiple different fronts. And obviously there are uh, uh, scientists, activists, gardeners, farmers who are engaged in this project. Um, but it, it really requires uh, sustaining initiatives that, that focus on diversifying agricultural systems as, as much as anything else. And you write that diversity in the seed bank and uniformity in the field have gone hand in hand. Why does diversity in a seed bank lead to uniformity in the field? Well, this really links back to what I was saying before about the early uh, in, in development of seed banks, their, um, their establishment as institutions for this resourcist vision, right? So, so genetic resources in the bank uh, was, was actually uh, in the 1950s, say, uh, and, and, and uh, at, at different instances before and after, uh, a vision in which it was okay for farmers to transition to growing a less diverse subset of crops and for that not to be risky because if something happened and we needed to take crop development in a new direction, the, the materials that breeders would need to do that would still be available. And so that's this idea of the, the seed bank, the recognition of the importance of diversity and creating this, this off-site institution to warehouse diversity, arguably allowed breeders, and in some cases still allows them to be cavalier about creating varieties that might be vulnerable uh, as a result of their genetic uniformity. You point out that there is an alternative to this line of thinking. As the historian Courtney Fullalove uh, reminds us, seeds are always in a state of becoming never fixable. Social scientists who investigate seed maintenance and exchange among farmers emphasize that varieties are not stable objects, locatable as pure strains. So if crops are not fi fixable, as in a fixed, stable state, do seed banks place them in a fixed, stable state? Wouldn't that stunt any development they may have had as crops? Well, I mean, that's part of the, well, it's, a, it's part of the fiction of many different aspects of, of seed development. Absolutely, to, to take a seed and turn it into a sample that's then registered and, and characterized in terms of its different qualities and traits and where it came from in the world, and then to enter that into a seed bank. That is to abstract it from time and from environment and to set a goal of keeping it just as it is as long as possible. But we might think about, I, I mentioned our intellectual property systems in plants so breeders can register new varieties and um, in, in different kinds of systems around the world. And this requires showing that they're distinct and they're uniform, but especially that they're stable. Uh, and one way in which you create stability is by reducing uh, the genetic diversity in the plant so it can't kind of move around genetically over time. But that's also a, that's a convenient fiction in a way that enables intellectual property regimes to operate. Because in truth, the dividing line between when a variety goes from being the kind of original line to the new line that's a that's a blurry boundary, uh, unless, of course, you're working with some some more recent genetic technologies that might allow you to say that more specifically. But for most of human history, and indeed for most of the crops that we breed around the world, you know, drawing a box around a variety as new and distinct and different is uh, is something that we have to do to make 
the, the market in seeds work, uh, but doesn't necessarily correspond to the, the biological reality. So yes, absolutely, the seed bank is marking off a seed as something that is uh, distinct and, and should be kept without change. Um, but we do that in other places in the agricultural research and, and marketing system as well. Uh, and so there are different ways in which we um, evade the reality uh, in which seeds are always in a state of becoming, um, as, as Courtney Fuller Love would have it. One last question for you, Helen. We've been speaking with historian Helen Ann Curry, author of the new book, Endangered Maze, Industrial Agriculture and the Crisis of Extinction. She is also the author of the 2016 book, Evolution Made to Order, Plant Breeding and Technological Innovation in 20th Century America. You can follow Helen on Twitter at H.A. Curry. You can find out more about Helen at Helen Ann Curry. One last question for you, and I promise you we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Or it's just a poorly written question. You never really know. You write stories of endangerment are meant to move us and often do. Repeated at a fever pitch with prophecies of catastrophic consequences, they become declarations of crisis. Although often the motivation for change Crisis can also be a powerful tool for constraining and limiting it. The anthropologist Joseph Masco insists that in the contemporary world, quote, crisis blocks thought. You add acceptance of crisis as the default condition, as has arguably happened with climate change, for example, can forestall deep engagement with the past, close off hard questions about the present, and diminish the possibilities for radical changes in the future. And you even write that the history of crop conservation is therefore not just about narratives of loss, it's also about acquiescence to crisis. So do tales of endangerment then lead to a loss of hope? And if so, does hopelessness lead to a limiting of our imagination? Because it reminds me of you know, the Thatcherite saying of neoliberalism, there is no alternative, which within that context, context limits political imagination. And as you quote Moscow, crisis blocks thought. So can we opt out of our acquiescence to crisis? And if so, how? I think we absolutely can. And I'm so glad that you pointed to that quote uh, at, the, at the end of the interview here, because one of the things when I, when I reflect on the stories that have been told about crop extinction, the way in which crisis has motivated, for example, salvage, um, of seeds over attention to people and the possibilities for cultivators to uh, develop new varieties in addition to maintain uh, the ones that they already have. I think there's this, if we can see survival and we can uh, hope for things that are new and different, um, then absolutely we turn our attention to those as the conservation objectives uh, rather than um, um, scraping up what remains and, 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 and putting it in a bank. Helen Ann, I really appreciate you being on the show this week. This, again, the book is called Endangered Maze, Industrial Agriculture and the Crisis of Extinction. And I think if our listeners, any of our listeners pick up your book, it's going to really change their view of the way, the way in which they even view things like uh, climate change, but also ideas about crop diversity. I really appreciate your writing and I really appreciate you being on the show with us. Thank you for having me here. Okay, take care. You too. 
pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996. This is hell if that conversation with Helen Ann on crop diversity and colonialism kind of and neoliberalism somewhat and so much more. If all that was in some way enlightening or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell or go to this is hell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported. This is hell on Patreon every week. I'm now doing this week in hell a review of what I got out of this week's show, which is definitely not what you got out of this week's show because we're all different and have different views of the world. So show your support by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Sebastian, please remind the listening audience, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listening audience is responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what is more likely to happen this year than this is hell's anniversary party currently scheduled for July 2020, uh, no. July 2021, uh, July 2022? Yeah, maybe, possibly, who knows? We, have already, we already have a backup date for Labor Day weekend. That's how much confidence we have in this. Uh, in this day and age, we always yes. need contingencies. Yep. Um, Sarah M. Uh, writes, Joe Rogan and Rachel Maddow join forces to get Air America back up and running both promise to behave better this time oh wow you know what i loved about air america is that it's named after a liberal supposedly radio outlet was named after a cia operation that dealt drugs in laos i I just love the fact that it's named after a cia operation that tells a lot of conspiracy theorists that it's probably just a limited hangout anyway (laughs) fabio ajl writes it's more likely that Washington sends Ukraine lethal aid to the same amount that Medicaid for all would have cost. Yes, I'll buy that. Jeremy A.T. writes, A riot twice the size of the BLM protests because people just need to dance. Yeah. LOL. Oh, I like that. Um, Matt H. writes, A late August super surge. Okay. <laughs> um, Lisa B. writes, it better effing happen because in my head, I've already started curating the art exhibit. <laughs> yeah, we've got a couple of people who are telling me they've already got a whole bunch of artists lined mm. up for the show. Um, Greg Maxi writes, the pandemic ends. Oh, but then you'd be able to... Um, never mind. <laughs> uh, Neil C. writes, I miss the party because of huge traffic jam. Somehow self-driving cars develop class consciousness and refuse to move. <laughs> Any more? Uh, David R. writes, Chuck will ask a guest a question from hell that neither he hates to ask, they hate to answer, or any of the audience <laughs> hates their response. Uh, I guess the consequence of that would then be that we um, withdraw doing questions from, from hell, or we introduce questions, questions from heaven. Maybe. Anymore? Nope, that's it. So you can send us your question or your answer to this week's question mail. You can email it to us at chuck at this is hell.com. You can tweet it to us at this is hell radio or you can message it to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash this is hell radio. 
And you can do all of that stuff, all the ways in which you can contact the show. And you can send us your guest or topic suggestions or tell us anything you'd like to share and we'll, you know, like to share on the show. If you want us to share it on the show, send it to us and we likely will read it on air and share it with the other listeners. This week we heard from Alex M., who is interested in becoming a member of the This Is Hell crew. Alex writes, this is kind of intense. Hey Chuck, I'm originally from Illinois and spent some time in Chicago studying fine arts at Columbia College Chicago in the late 2000s to the early 2010s. I wish I could say I came to your podcast back then, as it would have likely saved me quite a bit of heartache and quite a bit of trouble existentially, legally. I don't know why legally. In just about any way I could describe it. While I've danced with lefty feelings and ideas for some time, my study and acknowledgement of formal schools of thought began in earnest only in the past few years, and it has been quite the ride, especially this past year. I've written personally not an incredible amount, but a fair amount about that journey and my thoughts surrounding it. Your podcast has helped to inspire this journey, and though I do believe wholeheartedly in the ideals and the possibilities they lead to, I've also come to feel and believe that they have made my life well. Nearly a living hell. Much of it is my fault for many reasons. My journey over the last decade has opened my eyes to seeing through a political lens in which anarcho-socialist politics seem to be the only road to a just, equitable, and sustainable future, but that journey has taken me to some dark places. I am still dealing with this and working on becoming the best person I can, working towards treating everyone with love and respect, ensuring that those I interact with feel heard and valued. It's a work in progress, and I often slip in more ways than one or get it wrong completely. But I'm trying, I really am, and I'm a little exhausted and quite lonesome, to be a little too honest. I made a large move from Springfield, Illinois, to Portland, Oregon in the last year, and I often wonder if I somehow made myself a target in the process. My personal security has not always been the best, and I may have trusted the wrong people at the wrong times and unfortunately likely continue to do so. I'm reaching out in part to say how much I love the show and how inspirational it is to know that you have done it for so many years. And I'm also writing in part to share a piece of my story. And I'm writing this as a cover letter and or resume. If there is still work available, I would be very interested in knowing what, if any, poten if any potential there is for me to join the team. Regardless of this potential, I would like to say thank you for all of your hard work. Kindest regards. Alex and Alex, I got to just say that self-reflection, that self-awareness, that uh, willingness to think that you might be wrong and that you have space to still grow. That is hopefully the best thing that this show can do for me and for anybody who's listening. But wow, Alex, that's a pretty intense email. Yes, taking in all of what we learn here on This Is Hell every week, every show can be intense and a bit overwhelming at times. And even for me, it's very hellish. You are absolutely correct that searching for a just, equitable, and sustainable future in a present that seems unjust and unsustainable could be a journey that takes you through some really harsh realities. That journey can also be difficult in a world where treating everyone with love and respect is not the norm. Instead, we are supposed to view each other as competition and put our own self-interest first. And Alex, it is a rough journey for me too. Learning that the world is not what you are told it is over and over every day, either by the media, the government, or just interactions with friends and family on social media. 
It can be a real hard journey, but for me, it's worth it, and I hope it is for you, too. So thanks for the kind words, Alex. They're truly appreciated, and we are putting you on the list of people who we need to contact about being part of the This Is Hell team. We also got an email from Matt A. in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Matt writes to Chuck and the crew, Writing with hope that everyone at the studio and at home is doing well. Thank you, Matt. And actually, unbelievably, physically, I'm feeling pretty good. My throat's getting a little bit raspy right now. A little bit, of, tiny bit of pain, but otherwise, feeling pretty good. Matt says, I'm a longtime listener and short-time backer of This Is Hell. Recently, my girlfriend has also been listening. This follows a brief but misdiagnosed medical condition that has caused her to become legally blind. While we learn to adjust to these changes, the show and the conditions of its production have been inspiring to both of us. Sorry to hear about your girlfriend, Matt, but uh, being legally blind myself, it's not the end of the road. It's just that the road is suddenly a lot more uphill. Matt explains that with his girlfriend's encouragement, he writes, I was wondering about any of the open remote positions. I'm currently based in the Pittsburgh area and would love to help out wherever needed. I can send along a resume or a CV. Previous work experience includes, this is like my list of my work history. People can go to thisishell.com and check out my bio. It is my work history basically in one long run on sentence. And that's basically what Matt does here. Previous work experience includes deep frying onion rings, pushing wheelchairs at a nursing home, making lattes, selling cigarettes, interviewing refugees, cold calling, hot calling, accidentally giving speeches in front of auditoriums. I don't know how that happens accidentally. Distributing pan pandemic relief funds, organizing community festivals, and fostering kittens. Currently employed at a local history museum, sounds amazing. Please let me know what information you might need or if I should go to hell. Belt Magazine recently published an article by Nathaniel Johnson that might interest you guys. It details the 2020 Ohio nuclear bribery scandal involving Ohio State legislators. Sincerely, Matt. Matt then includes a link to the Belt Magazine article, The Ohio Bribery Scandal Behind the Worst Energy Policy in the Country. So here's a quick excerpt. This is crazy. Over the course of three years, Republican Ohio State Representative Larry Householder had taken money from energy companies and transformed it into power. The money built an army of state representatives that elevated him to Speaker of the State House and supported his legislative agenda. It also paved the way for the passage of a law in 2019, House Bill 6, widely recognized as the worst energy policy in the country, according to Leah Stokes in Environmental Political Science at the University of California, Santa Barbara. House Bill 6 nearly halved the renewable power that utilities were required to buy, eliminated energy efficiency laws, handed a billion dollars to the state's two nuclear power plants, and spent even more money to keep coal plants burning. A recent report from Gable Associates, an energy consulting firm, suggests the law will cost Ohioans $2 billion in excess utility bills and $7 billion in health care costs stemming from pollution over nine years. When both opponents and backers of House Bill 6 are asked about the scandal, they tend to talk about nuclear power. To opponents, it was a nuclear bailout. To backers, it was a sort of state-level Clean Air Act meant to keep Ohio's two nuclear plants from closing, thereby preserving the state's largest source of zero-emissions energy. 
but nuclear power was mostly a red herring that utilities used to distract from the real threat and thrust of the law. Keeping obsolete coal plants and coal mines profitable. Stokes, who wrote the book Short-Circuiting Energy Policy, also says House Bill 6 was really a coal bailout wrapped up in a clean energy and nuclear argument. So thanks, Matt, and now I don't know if we should get the author of the article on the show or if we should talk to Leah Stokes about her book, Short-Circuiting Energy Policy. If you have a guest or topic suggestion or would like to work as a board operator here in studio or join the crow, the crow, the crew remotely online or have anything you'd like to share with us about the show, send it to chuck at thisishell.com. And if you do, we will likely read it on air. Sebastian, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell. Tomorrow's guest is urban planning scholar Deanira Nevarez Martinez on her paper Homelessness in Southern California, Street-Level Encounters with the State and the Structural Violence of Performative Productivity for Radical Housing Journal. Nice uh, Spanish accent there. How many languages do you know? Uh, a few. German, English, Italian. My Spanish, I, I'm, I'm good at pronouncing Spanish. I understand it when people talk to me but then I usually can only answer in very broken Italian and then they just look at me like uh, I'm from the moon. <laughs> I gave a speech for a Spanish class the le- and you have to do two years of foreign language when I was going to college and the last thing that you had to do was t- do a lecture in Spanish. And so uh, I did this uh, lecture on uh, Velasquez's Las Meninas painting and in uh, and after it was over the uh, instructor said that was a really great presentation on Las Meninas. So have you ever taken French classes before? And I said, no, I mean, like in high school, like 10 years earlier or something, I took some French classes. And he said, yeah, because right in the middle of your lecture in Spanish, there was an entire sentence in perfect French. And I cannot speak French. So at some point, my mind just had some sort of synapse lapse, and I went into French mode. Very weird. I guess is what... That's what they mean when they say you are speaking in tongues. Yes, it does mean that, too. Although it's a lot more uh, attended upon when you're doing it in a Sunday church tent. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, uh, podcast host, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Sebastian Wupper. Sebastian, thank you very much. We were not joking. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>